Hey folks, you're listening to Scribbles and Spills, the podcast where creatives of all kinds expound on their art and spill their secrets. I'm your host, C.E. Hoffman, an author and screenwriter living with mental illness. You can find my books at cehoffman.net and follow me on Twitter at cehoffman2. I'm super excited to introduce our first guest. She was kind enough to interview me on her own textual healing podcast back in May 2021, and I've always appreciated her candor on Twitter and everywhere else. Mallory Smart is a Chicago-based writer and the editor-in-chief of the publishing house Maudlin House. She talks music and literature on her podcast Textual Healing, and her first novel, The Only Living Girl in Chicago, came out from Trident Press in August 2021. You can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Mal Smart. Mallory, it's so nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's really great. I, I liked your intro. I usually record mine separate, so you, you did a really good job. Oh, thank you. Again, this being the first episode, that that kind of accolade is exactly what I'm hoping for. No, I mean, when I record my intros, like it takes me a few times to actually get the wording correctly and everything. So no, good job. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. I think that's so true, though. I think that there's like so much production in so much art these days, people don't realize how many takes things usually actually take, you know, that there are humans behind all of this. Oh, definitely. I actually, there is so much, feel free to edit out whatever you need in this podcast. I, I have hours of things I've edited out of podcasts. So much production goes into it. See, that's kind of amazing to me. I feel like that would be so worth some kind of B-side release for podcasts, you know, the stuff that didn't make it, the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, a good portion of it would be me waiting for people to join the podcast. So you'll hear me humming or talking shit to myself for a while. <laughs> Just be like, anytime now, they're gonna join. <laughs> and then eventually it would be some random shit that someone says and they regret it later or it just sounded totally like not in tune with what we were going for. So it's like, yeah, I don't need that part. Okay. But the, uh, the humming and the, you know, talking silliness to oneself, I honestly think there's entertainment value in that. I mean, I have it where like for a brief time, I think I was just talking to my cat for 10 whole minutes while waiting for someone to get on the show. <laughs> But, I mean, cats are the best conversationalists in that they actually listen to us. (laughs) Well, the part that makes it better is, you know, when someone enters the recording session, they're like, oh, were you talking to somebody? And I just straight up lied. I was like, yeah, sorry, my fiance. And I was talking to him. (laughs) Yes, definitely not the feline. And yet, I love you bringing up your cat, though, because I feel like, you know, cats are almost like the hallmark for introverts. They're like our little, you know, animal of choice. And I love when you post those photos of how your cat guards you every time you're podcasting. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those weird, like, I don't know if it's just a cat thing or an animal thing, but I'm pretty sold on the fact that she thinks that I'm talking to myself And she's like, oh, shit, the human went crazy. I need to protect her while she's being crazy. 
I love that though, because I honestly think of podcasts as a form of madness in the best way, that they are kind of a shamanic journey that one or more people are taking together. And it's like your cat is privy to that deeper reality of what goes on when we just bare our brains. I dig that. Definitely. I like that you actually said shamanic journey because I totally was going to describe my book as a mandala later, but yeah, that works. I love that. Like a very modern, you know, and acutely precise mandala. Like I've been thinking that, okay, yeah, I love that you worked right into your book. So of course I want to congratulate you on its release. I think it's a stunning debut. And I've been thinking a lot about that, about how I think it is important you know, I think it's, it is a marker. I think it's a cultural marker for a lot of people in our age group living in North America, you know, and that's really exciting to me to read because I think it is those, I love one person I know described it as an anti coming of age novel, but I also think it does still stand, you know, within that genre. And those are, it's like those existential angst that even though they're really particular to their time, stand the test of time. And I'm wondering like how you feel about it, you know, where it sits for you within the culture scape as well within like the temporal landscape. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds so silly, but I've always had a pretty strong hate for the way that millennials are seen culturally and I don't feel like anyone has really written anything that actually feels true to how we actually live most of us tend to see us almost like Lena Dunham and girls so I wanted to show that kind of like millennial the struggle and it is almost coming of age because we didn't get to come of age in the same way that any other generation got to I don't know what it like if the experience is any different for you in Canada versus here you know, recessions and such. No, I think you hit on something that's definitely at the epicenter of Western culture. And like you said, for our age group. So that gives you this new scope of relatability. And yeah, this new insight, which I agree. I don't think that there's a lot of people who are necessarily portraying our experience in that really deeply lived, individualized way. And to me, that's the task of any writer, you know, is to use their own diverse experience to unify by some kind of transcendent means, you know, finding that link to greater humanity. And I definitely think your book does that, you know, especially comparing it to, you know, like some of the the early mid kind of 20th century authors who were really angst ridden and anxious you know, and thwarted by their own desires and their own fears, you know, but still trying to find hope. And that's, I think, a thread that I really love seeing woven through your work is there, there are these glimpses of hope. I'm wondering, like, was that a conscious element where you didn't want it to be in like entirely pessimistic? Or do you think that's just something that kind of came naturally in the narrative? It definitely came naturally. I mean, the main character, Zoe, she is doubting every aspect of herself, but she doesn't want to be. She's not sure if it's her, her natural environment, mental illness, friends, whatever. So yeah, it's definitely on her journey to try and actually get some self-actualization. And I do believe that there is a little bit of hope underlying, but mainly you could tell that she is just drowning. 
And sometimes that's what we all have to do. You know, I like that you don't just wrap it up all neat and clean necessarily, but it's like hope really is, I think, that life raft, especially for our generation. And like, I'm not really down with like Nietzsche's idea of hope. I'm pretty sure it was him who was, you know, said that that was, it was like a weakening effect that it had on the masses. And I don't really dig that. I want to think more so of hope as the element of human nature, which catalyzes radical, important, positive change. And, and I really feel that for Zoe, you know, she's obviously very much in, yeah, like you describe it as drowning. I would almost think of it as a desert, you know, she's in this, like, <laughs> she's both drenched and parched, you know, she's just in that crisis, which again, like we've acknowledged with the coming of age aspect kind of naturally hits all of us at a certain point. But again, you bring it to this really personal space. I feel like she's a modern hero, you know, because she she wants to give her life to something bigger, but first she has to sort out herself. And it's like, that's the true task of our age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One with the desert, I think you really would actually enjoy a lost chapter from the book. I could send that to you because <laughs> it is quite literal where she's actually going through a hallucinate. Uh, she's hallucinating while she's doing the drive during the don't quit your daydream scene. And basically in that chapter, I, I really think I should just release like a almost a director's cut. I don't know what you would do for <laughs> a book, but she's just trying to like visualize who she is like compared to the people in the car and the outside world. And in it, she's hallucinating and she's actually drawing a circle around herself and saying that she's safe within this circle and she can't leave that circle whilst just like surrounding herself with the desert. And then just thinking about like, this is written obviously um, for the Occupy era. So like she's hallucinating aspects of that. And then at some point she hallucinates herself as a younger child and is also like why the fuck are you not in the circle and stuff like that wow okay i i love you imparting that because you're right it's like some kind of behind the scenes footage it's so cool and i it leads me to wonder why that chapter was edited out um you know i actually just spoke about it on my podcast that was published today the one that no one listens to that horror cast um i would say the book was uh, about double in size than what it is currently. That was a lot of self-editing. I don't even think I had that chapter in once I sent it to Trident. Um, I guess I felt that the Occupy statements were a little dated, and I thought people might actually think that a little bit of uh, the hallucinations and everything would be a little bit uh, cliche. I get that. I get the reasoning. You know, you thought that it might be a little too much of the past now, as opposed to perhaps when you were writing the original draft. And I totally get the concern of cliches too. It's like, as writers, we're always, I think our biggest fear is that we're writing cliches. But of course, I feel like cliches are cliches for a reason. And it's almost like discerning the difference between what's just kind of a, you know, a facile trope and what's an archetype. You know, what's something that's sticking around just because it's it's too easy and what's sticking around because it it really strikes us. And like obviously I applaud your ability to kill your darlings. We all need to learn to do that better, but I would love to see that chapter 
resurrected in some form, even if it was something you released as a short story. Do you write a lot of uh, short fiction as well? Oh, yeah. And I actually have written quite a few novels that I just don't share with the world. In a mental health aspect, though, that is probably the most vulnerable chapter I wrote, which is also a bit of a reason why I cut it. Because I really go into like, yeah, like I was a little bit nervous that people were going to see like, ah, this is definitely like a girl who's caught up in like her own mental illness and drama. And I didn't want that to distract from the book too. I wanted Zoe to seem a little bit stronger than she would seem if I kept that chapter in. I love that. And in a way, that's kind of uh, finding that strength for yourself, you know, recognizing what parts of your writing are perhaps a bit more just personal consolidation of your experiences versus that which is best to be shared. And that's always a a fine line. Like, do you sometimes struggle with that? Because it sounds like, again, you said the book was like almost twice its size, its published size, you know, and that's and I can relate to that. You know, I have just stripped bare (laughs) lots of books, too. And I'm wondering how difficult a process that is for you. Um, Stripping down chapters? Yeah, knowing what to edit, you know, killing that many darlings at once, because that's like, you know, a beautiful massacre. I feel like as a publisher, I understand it a lot more. And I think that's actually what's allowed me to um, trim the fat a lot more these days, I mean, I have a poetry collection out, which I think is too long. And I wish somebody actually stripped that a bit. But some hurt more than others to take out. I'd say the only ones that hurt that I had to take out were the ones that like were already there when I sent it to the publisher, because I felt that those are very necessary. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's kind of what art is. You know, we I think we call them our babies or our darlings for a reason. They are somehow alive and they do grow. And to grow also is to shed and to die and to let parts of yourself fall off. And I love how you alluded to how being an editor as well as a publisher actually might have aided your writing. I know you identify more as a writer. I mean, is it difficult to balance those creative roles or do you find that they usually flow really well together like you just mentioned um i mean for the most part it's actually very difficult to balance them because malden house is very very demanding i mean right now i'm editing three books every single day we post stuff on the site um so then i try and mix time with writing Malden House always gets the lion's share. But because of it, it has allowed me to actually see my writing from a different lens from how like an editor would see it. And I know this is going to sound so capitalistic, what they would think would sell better. (laughs) I mean, that is a consideration, though, as much as, you know, there is a bit of a a cringe just for our deep art artsy souls (laughs) it is cringy as hell to even say i I just had to like almost choke that back be like i i know it would sell better yeah but that's okay too you know i feel like that's one of the forms of discipline that we can find in the literary form you know as long as it's not at the expense of our writing quality and our artistic integrity otherwise i think it's 
a totally valid, you know, and viable thing to do, especially if we want to make it a career, you know, and it sounds like you have derived a lot of that sense of editorial discipline from your role in the publishing house. And I mean, I love that. Indeed. I love everything you do, you know, at Maudlin House. But I do want to like get back to you also as a writer. You know, Hell we've already. Yes, t- thank you. <laughs> You're right. Like, because I can tell you put so much. And now that I'm learning more about the process of the book, I guess I'd like to start by asking if you want to share this. When was the first draft written? That is actually a very hard to answer question, but I'm willing to go down that rabbit hole. This did not start off as like one fully thought out manuscript. I mean, I would say I started writing it after one of my best friends killed themselves. I know that makes things dark immediately. And you could see that in the first chapter and last chapter. It bookends with that. But he had recommended a writing app to me called the Most Dangerous Writing App. And I think I even reference it within the book, but it's one of those, if you stop typing for like more than a second, everything you wrote will be deleted. So I started writing the book through pieces of that. Like I would set a prompt where it's like, you have five minutes, you cannot stop writing. And I would say it started off as like a lot of piecemeal bits of that. And then Occasionally, I would just journal or write full out chapters that I had an idea of after a night of drinking with friends or hanging out on my roof, which there are quite a few scenes that take place on rooftops. And it wasn't until the pandemic hit when I fully was like, I think I can make this a whole manuscript. But it wasn't even until Nate came from Trident and told me this is a novel not a whatever the fuck you think it was because I didn't know how to describe it. I wasn't sure if it was a short story collection or some weird, because, you know, Zoe is the protagonist, but it's not always just following her. And each chapter almost seems like it has, like, its own beginning and ending where it doesn't need to, like, be connected to the next ones, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. To me, that's the example of a finely written chapter and obviously there are gorgeous chapters and books that say absolute you know fuck you to that rule too which is great but (laughs) I I think it it indicates a sort of structure that perhaps you yourself weren't even privy to since you weren't even quite sure what this was and I think that's that's cool I think it shows you were I don't do you feel like this do you feel like you were just really working from like an intuitive muse driven space when writing this yes definitely that is cool because it came out way more organized than you would anticipate, you know, from just howling at the moon with Muse, you know? I think it was definitely because of the app that allowed it to come off seeming more organized. And then obviously, as the editing went down, I was able to trim it to seem like it was more full of intent, I guess. Yeah, full of intent. I feel like that's kind of almost what the editorial process is supposed to do. It's like, if it's a good piece of work, there is intent there, whether or not we're conscious of it or conscious of what it is. And it's like through that editorial scope, that's when we try to dig out that meaning and refine it and shapen it up. So yeah, again, you see that like, it's like you have this beautiful balance between, you know, order and chaos in the book, which I also think is important because it shows that, 
you know, millennials aren't just these harbingers of chaos. We do also value order, as does, you know, anyone with a smidge of conscientiousness in them. You know, so I really like that balancing effect that there is there. I actually enjoy the fact that you notice that uh, that one that part was actually full of intent. I wanted people to see Zoe as somebody who was doing her best to find balance, but it just wasn't always there for her. I love that. And I think you see that even in your voice. You know, I love the narrative voice that you have. And it's it's a lovely balance, you know, between poeticism and just very raw minimalism. And we need that right now, you know? I was a little worried that people weren't going to like the way the story was told because it kind of comes from like a hyper aware narrator because I was afraid of doing it in the first person, but no, I'm, I'm happy you like that. And that's interesting. What, what made you afraid of doing an I person perspective as opposed to the third person? Well, because it is obviously a natural assumption when you do it from the first person that people think you're just writing about yourself. And you wanted to have a little bit more distance between you and Zoe, despite some of the similarities you share. Definitely. I've definitely tried to explain to people because it's almost like, I'm sure as a writer, you probably get it too. It's like, I'm not that lacking in imagination where all I have to do is just write a journal of my life and this is what the book is. Like, Zoe is, she's a mixture of what I think my worst qualities are and then also what I wish I could do. So she definitely isn't me. Oh, I I love that though. I mean, she's kind of like significant of shame and potential, which I think are huge, massive, you know, wielding forces in our generation's lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always liked... Um, her ability to kind of jump into the abyss, the unknown. I mean, to just go to her home state, not knowing where she was going to live, what she was going to do. She just knew something was wrong where she was at that moment. And then living with people she didn't really know, and then just jumping between friendships and jobs. I really respected that idea, and I always wish that I had that bravery, I guess, is a little dorky to say, but yeah. No, there, she is a courageous character, you know, which, which I, I love, I love because it imbues her with this real complexity because she's courageous and she's extremely vulnerable. So again, it's like you do see this continual duality and merging and tension between opposites in her, which again, I think, I think that's why it really hits something. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in such a polarized time, you know, you're showing this person that's kind of standing one foot in the abyss, one foot on solid ground and recognizing that that's where most of us are. And of course, like you say, like, even if she's not entirely you, of course, any writer will acknowledge there's parts of us in every character. And ultimately, every character is, I mean, sometimes without because sometimes obviously I don't know about you but I certainly love writing people into stories because there's just exceptional characters out there in the world and then I put them in ridiculous mystical situations oh definitely but then at the same time I think some of our best characters are kind of the Zoe's where they're some unimagined or as yet undiscovered aspect of our psyche that like you say isn't actually us 
but is representative of something within us and therefore something within others. I feel like we've already touched on this a little bit, but I do want to, I don't know, maybe emphasize this too, because we've talked a lot about what this book can mean, you know, for a generation, you know, and even what it can mean a little bit for the literary art form. I'm just wondering for you, what does this book mean to you personally? Ooh, I love that you asked that because when I was looking over your questions the other day, I was like, oh, I remember that she sent me these. And yeah, I mean, I just personally, I feel like it was really great for me. It's a step of as a writer to actually being seen as a novelist because up until now, I was just really seen as a publisher slash poet. But really, this book I think I would have been fine even if it wasn't published. It was just an incredibly useful coping mechanism. Oh, I love that. I mean, just art as an incredibly useful coping mechanism. And I want to follow through that a bit more because you mentioned that already. You know, I, I myself have written some novels already too, but for me, my aspiration lies in getting most of them published or at least to a point where they are of a you know publishable merit, and it really interested me what you just said, referring to this book and to other books. You know, you said that you you have completed books, but there doesn't seem to be that that real thirst to disseminate them. And I would just love to, if you're you know able to just open up about where that psychology rests in you. You know, why are you okay with just leaving your art for you? I think that's beautiful, but I'd love to to hear your feelings about that. That's another very interesting thing because my therapist and I were just talking about that this week. Cool. But I guess I I would love to say that it was because I was just so confident I don't need someone to judge it. But a lot of it sometimes comes down to branding. I know, cringe again. But yeah, I guess at first I was very, very terrified for people to see like what a whole novel written by me would be like and I would say I wrote my first novel when I was like 16 um but I write all different forms not just literary fiction and I wasn't sure how I wanted people to perceive me one of my favorite ways to write actually is a fantasy or sci-fi I know no one would have guessed that part But no, I guess I just write because I enjoy it. I mean, one of my very first boyfriends, he did the very same thing. He's not a known writer because he never tried to get it published. It's just a form of self-satisfaction. Almost indulgence in a way. I mean, if you identify it as indulgence, I won't argue that, but I definitely think there's something a little uh, nobler, you know, and uh, responsible. I think there's taking a lot of personal responsibility there. I feel like especially people who do struggle with trauma and or mental illness, we have a lot to process. And I'm sure you can relate to this. I found that writing is the single best way for me to process all of that, even just on a daily basis. It really is a form of you know, it's a very healthy form of medication or coping mechanism, like you said. And I love that you're just comfortable in that, recognizing, you know, some of this is just for me. This is my meditation. That said, uh, I'm not entirely surprised you mentioned a love of writing fantasy and sci-fi, and I would love to read some of that. So just putting (laughs) that out there. (laughs) 
I promise you it's not like the it, it is so geeky. It's not like as fun as like Stranger Things or whatever. I am of the level of probably what the kids in Stranger Things would be writing themselves. <laughs> like when people are like, oh, it's the curse of Vecna. I actually am able to like sit down and explain who Vecna is because I did play Dungeon of Dragons. <laughs> there's a lot of appeal there though I totally get what you're saying I've been struggling with that too you know with wanting to to brand my voice you know and and adhere to certain publication standards that way but there is a huge market for sure for that kind of really in-depth sci-fi and fantasy and of course I guess there's always the option of a pseudonym if you ever do feel the interest to get it out there I'm not gonna say that there isn't a pseudonym and I'm not going to confirm that there is, but there might be. And there might be work that's already out there. That's even better. And again, I love that because to me, that's it seems like you have a really healthy relationship regarding ego and art. How did you get to this healthy space of not feeling the need to own your art? I'm not sure if I'm exactly at that space. I guess it almost comes from a place of shyness than just pure confidence. But yeah, I, I just don't know where that comes from. I mean, yeah, it could have to do a lot with introversion. I I mean, we definitely relate to each other that way. I don't remember, though, if in, on your podcast we discuss the difference between being a social introvert or a less social introvert? Would you say you, you veer towards being a less social introvert overall? Um, I'm a social introvert. Um, if you were to meet me in person, you wouldn't even guess that I was an introvert. Most people wouldn't guess it. My fiance always jokes around and says that I was a bait and switch um, because I seem so extroverted. <laughs> but no, I'm definitely... I could be social for like two hours and I'll be like, okay, I don't want to talk to anybody for a week now. Yeah, that's amazing. And I am kind of recalling that now. It was a while ago I was on your pod. I think we did touch on that because that is so relatable for me as well. I think I, I surprise a lot of people, you know, I'm seemingly vivacious. And then this idea that I need all this space to recharge, I think, I think, yeah, social introverts, we, we are kind of us, you know, we're stealth introverts. We're kind of passing extroverts, which honestly causes more trouble than, <laughs> than ease. All right. Well, you did already mention uh, briefly your therapy sessions uh, in this episode. And I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, actually, but one of the reasons I really wanted you on the show is because of your Twitter posts about the epiphanies you experience in therapy. I think those posts do so much to reduce mental health stigma and mm -hmm. what inspired you to share those, I could say struggles, but I would say more just that journey so openly on social media. Um, fuck it. I'm going to go and do the deepest thing I can. When I was younger, I really, really heavily suffered with mental illness. I still do now, but see, I actually am medicated. And I see a therapist weekly but I would have to say maybe I was about 17 and I'd be begging my mom saying that like I really wanted to see a therapist and she comes from the baby boomer baby boomer era where 
those things just weren't talked about and people just didn't go to therapy just because you were having a problem and they're like, it's a phase, it's teenage angst or you'll get through it. And once I finally was able to get better, I just wanted it to be something that people talked about, you know, to prove that it is something that's fine. Everyone I know has some form of mental illness. I'm not sure if we just kind of run in packs or <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to destigmatize it because it was so stigmatized to me when I was growing up. I love that because I feel like that's healing for you, obviously, on that personal level, but then you're helping to heal so many others, you know, and I can definitely relate, you know, especially to it's a shame because on the one hand, if mental health struggles begin, you know, in childhood or in adolescence, unfortunately, that is an indicator that it is actually a serious issue which will continue into adulthood. But ironically, lots of the child psychiatrists do kind of gaslight your experience. And I always remember one person told me, you know, just make it to 21 and you'll be okay. And uh, I wrote wrote about that in a blog entry recently, like, well, I'm almost 30. Oh, I love those promises. They were amazing. 18, 21, wait till you're out of college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to basically keep waiting. It's almost like they were just trying to hedge their bets on us, you know, and just make sure they didn't have, you know, a more serious uh, incident on their hands, not to be really cynical there. But, But I just love how you've, you know, like me, you've had these experiences for a long time. And rather than, you know, overly self victimize your just in this really healthy space of management. And again, within that space of management, you're recognizing how important it is to destigmatize because that's the problem is that it's actually those instances of management and healing therapy, other self-care, you know, medication, eating well, sleeping well, all of those aspects, which like so much of our mental stability is totally incumbent on. Ironically, it's those systems of treatment which stigmatizes us almost more than actually, you know, our condition. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And I just, yeah, I love that. And, you know, I, whoever your therapist is, I, I love them. You know, I, I'm so happy for you that you have access to that kind of treatment. Cause of course that is definitely a struggle sometimes for people is like securing that ongoing treatment. And how much does your creativity and your creative process come up? in those sessions? Well, one, I kind of like went through a moment where I kind of was switching therapists a lot. And I think at one point I was interviewing them basically. And I want to say I went through five until I found the one I have. And one of the questions I would always ask them is how familiar are you with the internet and the literary world? And it wasn't until I found one who actually really understands how the internet and meme culture and just what we do is like. So it does come up fairly often. She always asks at some point, like, are you writing? Do you feel you're doing good creatively? And I love that you recognize what a priority that is, because I feel like artists, you know, people with high trait openness, et cetera, like we need to create or we will just die inside. And I think that's even more true if you struggle with mental illness. And I think a part of that death also comes from being in an environment or in our case, even a society that doesn't actually value what we do. 
per se. And so I think, yeah, recognizing that you need a support structure of people who recognize the importance of what you're doing is it's just vital. Yeah, you just don't want that older therapist who's just kind of seeing this as a hobby or, oh, the internet, you just got to spend less time on it. So, yeah, that was definitely very important for me to find. And ironically, um, I don't know who her daughter is because I actually wanted to set that firm boundary, but she is apparently in the literary world and a big influencer as well. That is really interesting. And it's cool that they even, you know, divulge that amount of personal information. I don't know how uh, how much that sometimes trips you out. I love that one uh, kind of ironic comparison in the Next to Normal song, that musical about uh, a mother struggling with bipolar. And it's somewhat exaggerated to a degree, but I still think they hit home on, you know, mental health stigma and, you know, the angsts they're in. And there's this one line where she's talking about her psychiatrist you know how he knows my deepest secrets and I know his name yeah no I I definitely know a lot more about my therapist I think she realized that it took her having to give me information not exactly like a trading bits but here and there she would let me in a bit and we've seen each other for so long now that it would be very very strange if I didn't know more details about her. I love that. You know, I'm so happy for you. And I wish for, you know, so many people that they too can attain and retain that kind of healthy, stable relationship with a person in treatment. I was also going to say a very important thing that she does with the sharing is she shows that um, she too has mental health issues. And she's actually explained like the different therapeutic methods that have helped her and she's actually gotten quite honest with some of the darker things she's gone through and it helped sell me on certain medications or methods that we've tried and that's why I think it's so important to dismantle the idea of you know pure scholar pure teacher you know pure healer pure wounded because the fact is that this is all relationship and this is all dialogue that we enter into with each other. And that's why I also think it's important and ideal to have practitioners who have lived experience with whatever they're treating. I know that's not always possible, but it is just so ideal. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've touched a lot, you know, on your creativity and I would even say to some degree, your creative process. And we've kind of related that to mental health. Do you think that your mental health experiences are a hindrance to your art or are they ultimately a help? Both. Um, I would say before I was 25, it helped me like crazy because I am bipolar and I was not medicated and mania is amazing if you're wanting to get a project done, not to... (laughs) promote people to get off their medication because that is actually ultimately what led my friend to kill themselves is they had that urge that, you know, I had too. once you get medicated is that, you know, it dulls you down a bit and you don't go on those like writing sprees as much. So, you know, if you're medicated, stay medicated people. But now It gives me good insight. It allows me to actually understand people. It gives me more interesting 
ways of thinking. But at the end of the day, like you saw on my Twitter, I just don't want to do anything creatively today. I just feel depressed. And it's really hard to explain that to some people is that sometimes you're just going through an episode and you just, you can't do anything. Yeah, I think that uh, I understand what you mean because those, you know, those radical highs that then can sometimes spin out, you know, really negatively, you know, or even just more minor highs and then the lows, like there is something painfully inspirational about that stuff. And you definitely can derive like a lot of productivity uh, <laughs> when you're up, <laughs> even if you're too up. Um, but this is the, you know, the, I'm struggling a little bit to, uh, you know, put the feelings into words right now, because it is just a really, it's a terrifying calamity, you know, experiencing mood swings or mood cycles, because like you say, even if you are being, you know, healthily, not, not you, if you're emotionally damaging experiences, there we go, are being healthily controlled by various treatments, episodes still occur. And there's this, um, it's almost, sometimes it almost feels like a nihilistic inevitability. But like you say, I think the, the real benefit from all of that is the perspective and the maturity. And I think almost above all, just the enforcement of self-care. You know, I always say that to people like I, the, my only option is to take care of myself. I have to, you know, eat well and sleep right and hydrate and meditate. If I don't do those things, I, I go on a, you know, just this uncontrollable roller coaster, you know, that not everyone actually has to deal with, you know, so I think it really, as much as it would be nice to get to that space of self care, without being forced to, on the other hand, I'm kind of grateful that those problems arose so early, because it forced me to take responsibility for how I treat myself. I dig that. I mean, really, the routine is everything. I mean, it took me a very long time to get there. But that's actually what helps right now is even though I'm in a depressive episode, the fact that I, it's been drilled into me so much of like how to hydrate, what time to go to bed, when to meditate, be mindful, journal, wake up, eat at this time. Even if I'm going through this horrible episode and I just don't want to do anything, my body is still going through the motions of that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I think that just takes such personal power and personal care it's definitely still something I struggle with because I sometimes almost you know this is gonna sound so bad but sometimes it's almost like the depressive episodes are like the chance to not do things you know and it's almost like that excuse it's like, or it's like yes exactly you know and I but I love that we both recognize and first of all it's okay to do that too sometimes sometimes it is okay to just go into the feeling really, really just go into it and, you know, wallow one way or another, as long as you're doing that safely. But again, I think you're right that the best way to manage it and the best way to separate ourselves from our mental health experience is to say, okay, I recognize this, I acknowledge it, I give it space, I'm going to take care of myself in response to this. I'm not going to let it control my behavior. I mean, even today, you know, I did see that Twitter post of yours where you're kind of like, really don't want to people today, really don't want to do this stuff today but you're here. You are yeah. peopling. You are doing this stuff. And that's just so awesome. Yeah, that was actually the main thing that was covered during my last therapy session was the 
sometimes you have to be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's good to be uncomfortable and to push out of your darkness. And if it scares you, maybe it's okay. In fact, I feel like it it needs to scare you a little. Isn't that what they say about like a good goal? A good goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. And like, it sounds, you know, silly, but I think it rings so true, right? You're doing something new. You're doing something that you have no experience with. And of course, it's going to scare the hell out of you. As it should. And that's, I think, what we need. We need that process of exposing ourselves to things where we might fuck up. Because then you realize that your fuck-ups don't make you, nor need they break you. You know, you can keep plodding along, and that's where life happens. Life happens in, you know, life happens in the desert, and life happens in the storms, and life happens in the times between. And it's all about finding that resilience as well as that self-compassion to weather all Mm -hmm. of that. You know, and it makes me think of that one, probably my favorite quote from your book, for one hot second everything was okay. I liked writing that one. (laughs) It's killer. It's very rare. I will admit this because I am, you know, really picky. It's very rare that I read a line I wished I had written. And that is among them. (laughs) I hate to admit that I took some of those vibes from Sex in the City, you know, when she does the, and just like that. But... (laughs) It was definitely, yeah, I get that kind of like inner monologue sometimes, like the narrator in me when I'm having a main character moment. And it's just like, and wow, that ended up okay. This was all right. Let's wrap the scene. Oh, I mean, to me, that's the power of narration. And it's so true. Once you habituate that, once your narration... (laughs) pathways are myelinated it's true you start to just narrate your own life your own experiences and that I think is where we're gifted you know those incredible lines and insights and epiphanies which again stand the test of time even though it is just some instant some beauteous flash you know of hope or insight it's something that lasts if we have the courage to write it down and uh, this next thing is a little just bit more aesthetic but something else I loved about your book was the chapter titles. It's like they were kind of a lot of the times those amazing quotable flashes of insight. Uh, Talk to me about your choice of chapter titles. Okay. I'm actually going to have to remember what the chapter titles are. So I'm going to (laughs) reach behind me really quickly. You can. And I can also, if you want, quote you my two favorite chapter titles, because I do save all of that stuff. (laughs) Okay. So the one, if you stop typing, all progress will be lost. That is actually um, the first thing you read on the app that I was writing on. Um, Semi-read, semi-sad. Don't know that one. But some of them, it was just like, they were just the thoughts that I was having, like the mood Ted Bundy defending himself in his own trial. Love it. That was just exactly what I was thinking. And then I just wrote. I mean, I just love that you did that, you know, for chapter titles. You know, my other favorite one, I'm almost certain this was a chapter title, was Watch More Sunrises Than Netflix. Oh, yeah. That one. Yeah. I like how I just actually pulled, uh, I immediately opened to the, uh, subject on where we land chapter. Like, I mean, and yeah, like, 
I just love it because it's like you get these little, and it makes sense because of your relationship with the internet, you know, and your interest in that form of media communications. Cause it's like, you have these gorgeous little sound bites, you know, of wisdom and hope as the chapter titles, which are, you know, so retweetable in that essence, you know, but then they carry so much weight as well. I was thinking of that today too, where it's like, obviously not all simple thoughts are profound, but I would venture that most profound thoughts are simple ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I you agree just, with that. Right. And I feel like you just did that so well with chapter titles. I'd love to see that kind of become more of a, uh, a theme. I, I kind of do something similar with my more experimental stuff with chapter titles. So it'd be cool if we saw that rise up a little bit more, you know, that the chapter title is, you know, entertaining and enlightening in of itself, as opposed to just, oh, I'm summarizing here, you know, because that's more traditionally what it was. Like, I want my chapter titles to almost be like a screen grab of what the chapter is. I want it to actually give the tone almost like a mini bit of it, a trailer almost of what the chapter is about to be. Exactly. And I think you do that really beautifully. Because of course, one of our struggles too is we're wanting to release these full length works, but we do need to cater to the modern realm, you know, and how people process information. And I think it is things like that, you know, the attention grabbing titles and even shorter chapters, things like that, which create a certain seamlessness and are less daunting, you know, for people who maybe do really want to get back into literature, but are, you know, don't want to start with Herman fucking Melville, which, you know, is fair, (laughs) you know, but you still have some, some really true literary quality in this book. It doesn't have to be unapproachable to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, yeah, this has just been amazing. I guess we should wrap up pretty soon here. Uh, I mean, obviously I want people to know where they can buy your book. Where can people purchase the only living girl in Chicago? Well, obviously you can get it from Trident press or bookshop.org. And if you feel like supporting evil, you can do it on Amazon. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, is it the necessary evil these days? I don't know if we want to go that far, but it, the ubiquitous evil, at least, we'll call it that. <laughs> it's like the easiest way, almost. Which is funny because it's like, well, that is the low road, isn't it? That's like to a T, the description of the low road. But again, no judgment. You know, some people need that convenience, you know, or need that free shipping or whatever. So, like, we can't all dismantle the system overnight. I'll own it. I get most of my books off Amazon. What are you going to do? You know what I've been doing lately, because finances have been a real encumbrance. I've been really getting into going with my partner to thrift stores. We have one called Value Village up here, and then we have one called Goodwill. And they have cheap, beautiful books. And I've amassed quite a collection of late, you know, and it's, it's a really fun treat. It's like going to the dollar store. You know, you can blow... 20 bucks and you've got this like plethora of stuff yeah there was a stage in my life when actually one of my friends worked at a bookstore and he actually told us that like if they got too many copies of one book that they'd throw it away so yeah there are quite a few dumpster divin books on my bookshelf that's awesome I don't know if divin is a word but it is now yeah (laughs) <laughs> it is now. We're writers. We can make up words. Shakespeare supposedly did. 
Damn straight. I mean, obviously I could talk to you for much longer. This has just been exceptional. I'm so grateful for you opening up this space, you know, for the podcast. I'm so grateful for you sharing all of your insights and giving us such deep insight into this book, this really important book. Uh, is there anything you want to say to someone listening who may be considering therapy? Do it. Just do it, to quote Nike. <laughs> That's our one endorsement per episode, everyone. <laughs> no, I mean, it's really one of those, if you're on the fence about therapy, I, I think everybody should see a therapist, even if you don't have a mental illness, just always having that objective point of view is good. Exactly. I so agree. And I kind of want to add on to that. My guess is it's the same answer, <laughs> but it might not be. Is there anything you'd say to someone listening who is considering getting into writing or trying to write their first book? You know, it's really starting that shamanic journey via the arts. Honestly, just dive in. I mean, there's just nothing more I could say other than that, because that's what I did. That's beautiful. And I think that might end up being our uh, episode title, because I feel like that's really what we did, you know, with this being the inaugural episode and, you know, the breadth and depth that we've achieved here. And I dig it. Yeah. So again, thank you so much, Mallory. This has been awesome. Thanks. All right, everyone, that was Mallory Smart. Once again, her debut novel, The Only Living Girl in Chicago, is available, so please go get your copy. It is well worth it. Remember to follow Mallory Smart on Twitter and Instagram, and check out Maudlin House Press and Magazine, because they're doing some awesome things. Until next time, this is C.E. Hoffman on Scribbles and Spills. Mm -hmm.